Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining me today, we have Dr. Natalie Parks. Hi, Natalie. Are you there? Hi, I am here. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for your flexibility and for joining me today. (laughs) Yes, it is my pleasure. Before we get started today, why don't we have you do an introduction of yourself for our listeners? Sure. Uh, My name is Natalie Parks, and uh, I am a behavior analyst. I also have my degree in school psychology. Uh, I initially got my start in behavior analysis uh, through working with individuals uh, with autism, actually straight out of undergrad. And went back to school, became a BCBA, um, have worked in a variety of different environments, um, initially focused on individuals with autism, so in homes and clinics. Uh, I spent some time at Kennedy Krieger Institute and Marcus Autism Center. And then uh, about six years ago or so, I started making the transition from uh, services with individuals with autism into organizational behavior management, mostly focused on leadership and performance management. And I did that for a while, first within an organization and then uh, broke out on my own. So now I have my own company where I focus uh, solely on organizational behavior management, but my two specialty areas are leadership and diversity and inclusion. And we now apply it to um, kind of community-facing organizations, so organizations that are in the business of providing some sort of service to make communities or individual lives better in some sort of way. Um, So that can include like ABA companies, police officers, firefighters, uh, hospital organizations, things like that. How did you make that transition or what did you feel was your experience as you were transitioning from working with autism populations to more organizational um, systems? Uh, Great question. Uh, It wasn't necessarily something that I woke up one day and said, oh, I think I'm going to do this. Uh, I think very early in my career, I was uh, super lucky to have a supervisor that was phenomenal. Uh, used BFT before I even knew what behavior skill training was, uh, did an excellent job of just mentoring me, uh, both professionally in my career, uh, as well as a behavior consultant, but also individually um, in my own personal life. And after I, uh, he was my mentor and, and supervisor all throughout graduate school. And then, you know, I started transitioning to other institutions, and as I advanced in my career and I moved up the ladder fairly quickly, uh, what I noticed was that not all of my leaders and supervisors were the same uh, stellar people. And it wasn't necessarily because they didn't want to do well or, uh, you know, were, were bad people in any sort of way. They just were not really effective leaders, and it had really detrimental effects on the people under them, on myself, on the organization as a whole. So my, my shift in focus really came from those experiences and, and seeing that juxtaposition of really awesome leadership and supervision to really poor leadership and supervision and watching how practices can get unethical based on poor leadership and things like that. 
and I decided, you know, if if I could start focusing on leaders and training leaders, then I could impact far more individuals um, because it's, it's the leaders of these organizations that are kind of having that effect, right? Um, so that's kind of where my, my focus uh, for leadership and kind of performance management changed. Uh, I would say my, my focus on diversity and inclusion, and this is kind of a, another interesting story um, in that I, it's always kind of been a side thing. So uh, all throughout undergrad, probably even back to high school in some ways, uh, and, and especially throughout graduate school, all of my special projects, um, especially in psychology, were focused on inclusion and racism and uh, sexism and all of, all of the isms and inequities uh, that, that we see throughout the world and especially in America. And it's always kind of been a side thing. So I was like, I do autism, but then I have this other thing that I really love to do. And I would really love to figure out how to use behavior analysis to do that. And um, as I started my own company and had a little bit more freedom to, to do what I wanted and choose what directions I wanted to go, I started combining those and bringing those together. And then I started focusing on uh, some of the organizations that uh, probably need it the most or at least are most impactful with the people that they're serving. Well, I think that that brings me to the next area or the next question. I first became aware of some of the work you were doing from an unlikely social media platform these days, LinkedIn. <laughs> it's still active. People are still there in case you don't know. Right. <laughs> some really great professional colleagues and opportunities are there. But you had posted or there was a post about some work you were doing with police officers or academies. Can you elaborate and explain some of that work? Yeah, so uh, right now we are working with the police departments and we are we're doing a variety of different things. So we, we actually have one department that has given us quite a bit of freedom to implement quite a few different things. Uh, the first thing that we're doing is um, focus on diversity and inclusion. And so we're providing a series of trainings to all of the uh, officers, so the um, patrol, patrolling officers. And we're, we're really making a tie and a bridge between uh, diversity and inclusion and behavior analysis. And we're talking about uh, diversity is more kind of the measure of differences that you might have within the workforce and between one another whereas inclusion are the behaviors that uh, make the difference between whether uh, people who are different from you feel as though they belong in the same space that you belong or don't. And so uh, what we're doing is taking them through kind of a series of here are the different behaviors, the different way that behaviors show up, you know, the different things we say, the different ways we feel, how we think about things, uh, and then more overtly how we do things that can increase or decrease the inclusion within the workforce. As it relates to police officers, we're also bringing in that community element. And so we're talking about, you know, that these are some of the, the things and behavior contingencies that build that quote unquote blue wall. 
and these are things that they can do to help bring that wall down and build stronger connections, positive relationships with those in the community that they, they are supposed to be serving. And do you mind sharing, like, what location you're doing this in or what city or town or state maybe? Yeah, so I'm in St. Louis, Missouri right now. And uh, we, so that's, that's where we started, and we are actually now continuing uh, law enforcement education providers, which means that the, the law enforcement uh, officers in Missouri, and it, it differs a little bit from state to state, but most states require some sort of certification. Um, usually it's called like the post certification, which is a peace officer certification. Um, and we're continuing education providers for that now. So we did that at the state level um, through our state capital, and, and now we're working with some local police departments in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. So the first one, uh, the one that we're doing the biggest project with is St. Anne, which is a small suburb within St. Louis County. And uh, the, the fun and interesting thing about St. Anne is that uh, they actually have a diversity coordinator, and he is actually a BCBA trainee. So it's, it's super kind of unique and uh, interesting, but they're also only one of two departments in the entire St. Louis County area or St. Louis metropolitan area that has anything related to a diversity kind of coordinator or, you know, kind of thinking about those things. Uh, but but on the outside, St. Anne actually has a very negative reputation around St. Louis. And so it's, it's very interesting that we're now getting to see both sides of it, right? Um, as a community member, I know the very negative history that uh, they have and the very negative perceptions that community members have about this police department. But as I'm getting to work with the police officers and, and see the inside uh, parts of it, I'm starting to see that there's another story and then it's much more complex, right? Um, so that, that's the first one where we're expanding. We're looking at, there are two police academies in St. Louis that we're also trying to get some anti-bias um, and some de-escalation training uh, added to, but we're still kind of working on that. So I can't necessarily release those names, but we're in St. Louis right now. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, right now, of course, especially the social injustices, uh, all the isms are very highlighted, particularly when we're talking about race and equality. And there is a huge movement, um, of course, where we're looking at people are talking about defunding the police. Uh, what does it mean to support the police? It's, it's quite an interesting time. And I appreciate that you're sharing getting to learn and see different sides or different perspectives of a larger issue. How did you begin this relationship with the police departments? You mentioned that there was inclusion and diversity officer who you mentioned was a student of behavior analysis. How did that relationship have come to be? Was it purely coincidental? Yeah. Uh, so it, it was actually um, fairly accidental. Uh, you know, my, um, one of my colleagues and I at Behavior Leader have been working on getting into the police departments for a little over a year now. Uh, we had a curriculum, we actually had a couple curriculums developed, um, focused on even like identifying function and identifying like if I arrive on the scene, 
and somebody is agitated, uh, what are some quick behavioral cues that I can identify to immediately start to de-escalate the situation? Um, and so we have been working on that, but, uh, you know, there, there was a, a wall there. Um, you know, police, police departments are a little bit suspicious of outside people. Um, and so we weren't really making a whole lot of traction. Uh, on kind of another note, uh, I also am a co-manager of an ABA company that focuses on sports and using behavior analysis to increase performance of athletes and things like that. And a local university here in St. Louis, there was a student who wanted to do a practicum within that company. And the funny thing is, it was during a time that I was like super busy. And so actually one of my colleagues who doesn't live in St. Louis was managing that whole process. And finally said like, Natalie, you're in St. Louis. Can you please just sit down and meet with this guy? And I was like, sure. Okay. And I sat down and he and I started talking and I started exploring, you know, what are your major interests? Where do you see yourself in five years? You know, a lot of the questions that you would ask a student um, that you're considering, you know, doing a practicum experience with or, or providing supervision for. And he started talking about his work within the police department. And I was like, huh, that's interesting because let me tell you about what we're doing at my other company, Behavior Leader. Um, and so he actually came on as a trainee um, getting supervision and practicum experience under me. Uh, both for the sports and team ABA as well as within the police department for behavior leaders. So it was, uh, um, uh, I don't know, the powers that be brought us together in a very perfect way. Um, and, and now it's just been uh, a slow process. So he's, he's done a lot of headway with the team in St. Anne. That's where he is positioned. And um, now they're kind of like receptive to, to bringing people in. They're actually very excited about it. We did some ride-alongs with the police officers so that we could get a feel on it. We actually took some baseline data on uh, interactions and how they interact with uh, individuals within the community. Uh, but, you know, we also got to, at least from my framework, it was fun to, to ask the police officers questions like, what, what, how do you define suspicious behavior? Like, what did that person just do that made you want to follow him for a little while? Or, um, you know, what made you turn in this parking lot? Like, what did you see that raised some sort of suspicion? Um, and, and trying to get some kind of objective operational definitions of, like, suspicious behavior. Um, you know, so, so that has been kind of fun and interesting, but a lot of the officers now are like, we cannot wait for this training. Like, we so need de-escalation training. We need bias training. Uh, we need to know more about diversity and inclusion. So it's interesting to see, uh, you know, because I, I think a lot of the public, um, especially when you think about, you know, A can't wait and defund the police, uh, people are thinking that police don't want this. And uh, our experience is, is largely that once they know what we're doing and once they know we're not there to kind of be punitive or punishing in any type of way, they're excited about it. Like, they're super excited about it.
That's really awesome to hear. And it's super interesting to think about how it is about our opportunities. It's about the opportunities we take and that we don't take. So sitting down to meet with that guy really shifted not only what you're doing and the, the learning that he'll receive in that role, but also the impact that you're making. And for me, I the, the key piece of something you said, too, was becoming a continuing education provider. There's value even, you know, look, I'm a behavior analyst, and I, I know many of our listeners are, too, and it's like, look, I, I go to continuing education that I enjoy, but if there's a supervision or an ethics CE somebody didn't get in, you know, that might be why they show up to the next webinar because it has that in the right. title. It has that additional motivator. And so um, it may help, of course, not just with the buy-in, but I believe in showing relevance, right? Somebody else, some organization or entity has determined that you meet the requirements to provide value and something that furthers the education and knowledge of the police officers. That's incredible. How did, how did you approach that or how did, you, how did that begin? Uh, so that, um, you know, I, I did a lot of research, uh, as behavior analysts usually do. I started studying, um, and, and part of this was I, you know, I, I started doing a lot of research and, and I have a passion for working with police officers largely because they're a point of entry for the justice system in a lot of ways. And the, the justice system has many, many, many flaws, many inequities. Uh, and, you, and you see that reflected just in who ends up, you know, going to jail, prison statements, what happens to individuals when they come out of prison or jail, and how difficult it is to get a job, to find housing, you know, all of these things that I, I think a lot of us, especially who come from uh, backgrounds where we don't necessarily have to worry about negative interactions with police officers. We don't worry as much or think about, about going to jail or having family members uh, go to jail. Um, you know, we might not think about these things, but they're, they're present and they're very real. Um, but if we can change the point of entry, right, um, then we, as we work on the other problems within the justice system, we can still have a huge impact because we're changing the way that people enter the system. And if we can change the way that police officers are interacting with the community, then we can change that point of entry. And so, you know, right now we're at like one or two departments and one or two very small communities in St. Louis, but we are talking to people in Washington State. Uh, we're, you know, uh, talking to people on the East Coast as well. And so the word is starting to get out there and starting to spread. For the continuing education, I did a lot of research. I had to figure out, you know, uh, how are police officers certified? What does that look like in the state of Missouri versus a different state? Are there any national standards? There are not. Um, you know, and I finally figured out Missouri's uh, functioning and <laughs> I literally called every single academy um, uh, person in charge of continuing education at every police academy in the state of Missouri. And I finally got a hold of somebody. And that person told me um, about the person in Jefferson City, which is Missouri's capital, who uh, oversees all of the peace officer training and continuing education. And they actually, I convinced them to give me his cell phone number. And I called him directly. 
And I said, this is what I'm trying to do. This is why I'm different. I'm a behavior analyst. I will focus on the behaviors. I'll focus on generalizing and making sure they can do it while they're working. And we had this awesome conversation. Uh, they sent me an application. Interestingly enough, I filled out the application. Uh, you know, you have to email it into their certifying body. But we got, we got um, our first class passed. Uh, with the first application. And now we have five more classes that they're supposed to be reviewing Monday. So I'm hoping they'll go through just as easily. So I was going to ask, is it it's the content that they're reviewing? It's not like you're a continuing education provider, go and pick whatever topic you want to deliver to police. It's looking at your particular training content. That they're, is that how they review it? Yeah, it's actually um, a fairly stringent process. You have to uh, provide evidence and documentation that you uh, are qualified to provide, um, you know, education in the area that you choose. There are different content areas um, as well as, like, different ways that you will teach. So you have to provide documentation. Uh, for example, like, if you say, I'm going to do, like, skills, um, skills increase, or I'm going I'm to teach you to do something then you have to provide documentation about how you will teach that and how that will be demonstrated and those types of things. And then uh, you tell them how many hours it is, you tell them the class name, you have to write out objectives, like learning objectives, and then you actually have to give them a course outline that details kind of how the teachings will happen, what activities you're going to include, how they'll be assessed, that type of thing. So it's fairly stringent. Um, and, and interestingly, the reason that we have to do like so many classes is we have a full curriculum uh, and they said if you teach it, you know, all in one day, like a six or eight hour class or something like that, then you can get that approved as one big class. But if you divide it up into smaller trainings, you have to get each individual one approved. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where it comes through. So it's a, it's a fairly intensive process. Um, I do think I have an advantage because I'm a behavior analyst and we know how to write objectives really well. <laughs> um, and so I think that's kind of an advantage that I have over a lot of the other people who might be submitting, who might be, uh, you know, lawyers and uh, other police officers and things like that. Wow, it's so interesting to learn of a new process and procedure and to see the parallels and the differences across professions. You were mentioning earlier getting operational definitions or trying to get some overt descriptions of some internal or covert thoughts that police officers were having. That reminded me of when I was first um, starting my master's, I got called as a, as a juror for a federal jury. And I was mm. supposed for my, my class project, you know, operationally defined things. It's like weekend one of the class. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not at work. I'm, I'm at the courthouse and I can't talk about the case and and how do I do this assignment? And my professor said to me, oh, well, good. You get to operationally define guilt and, um, you know, like nervousness and embarrassment and suspicion. And I wow, like, that's not fair. Um, but I told because I think back to really it was multiple exemplars and stretching me outside of the population that I was comfortable with or familiar with. And so I think back to that when you're when you're saying suspicion, it immediately flashed me back to that moment. And I was wondering if if you might be able to share 
some of the answers that you get, um, understanding they're not quotes or anything, but just some sort of general responses. How do they define or how have they been responding to those requests? Yeah, so uh, the one, one thing that I've learned is that it's really subjective um, and everybody has, you know, different interpretations. And um, one officer is, is a newer officer and it was interesting because during our time together, we spent about three, three and a half hours together, and he said repeatedly, well, I'm still new, so I'm still learning, so I haven't figured it all out yet. And you could definitely tell that somebody has been telling him that, right? Um, it, it didn't sound like his own language that he was generating. It sounded much more like people have made it very clear that I'm still a rookie and I don't know the ropes as well as they do. Um, but I was talking to him, and, and one thing I said was, you know, what are some of the things that, that you pick up on? And, um, and, and it, was, it was a variety of things. Uh, he described, uh, you know, let's say that you're driving down the street, and somebody is in the left-hand lane, and all of a sudden, like, suddenly turns right. Uh, and they talked about, like, there, there's a difference between, like, oh, no, I should have turned there and I wasn't paying attention versus uh, I see a cop coming my way and it's an aggressive turn. And I was like, what's an aggressive turn look like, you know? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't see anybody aggressively turn, so I couldn't measure that in any sort of way. Uh, but there was an incident where um, it, it, the, the night that I was writing, it was dark and it was raining. And uh, interestingly, there were a whole lot of people driving without their lights on. And so one person, um, you know, he, he tried to flash his lights uh, to get the person to turn on their lights. Uh, they didn't. And so we turned around and the car was turning left into like a shopping uh, strip mall parking lot. Well, when, when we as, as the police car pulled up behind this person, they then turned off their signal and went straight about half a block up to the stoplight. And I said to the police officer, is that suspicious? And he said, well, I mean, yeah, maybe, or maybe he's just, you know, maybe the, the, the person is just lost or doesn't really know what they're, they're doing. So it was kind of interesting because I, I was like, why isn't he turning left into the uh, parking lot? Like, yeah, this must be suspicious, right? But the, the, the police officer was like, well, maybe, I don't know. Uh, and then we turned left. And he was explaining to me that he didn't turn his lights on while they were at the intersection waiting at the light because most people don't know what to do when the lights come on. And when you're in the middle of a busy intersection like that, like you don't want to create, um, you know, an additional kind of traffic concern. So he waited till uh, the car turned and then turned the lights on and the car kind of like swerved um, a little to the left and then pulled over which again, my kind of mentalistic interpretation was like, oh, you know, they're probably nervous or they don't know what to do or whatever. And the police officer was like, now see, that's suspicious. Like, what are they doing? Why are they swerving all over the road? Like, is, is, is this person drunk or something? And so it was, it was just like very eye-opening to, to see kind of the lens that I would think things through 
uh, being so much different from the police officer. Um, and it turned out to be this like older man who just forgot to turn his lights on. Um, and you know, the, the, the police officer was like, turn your lights on and, and the guy did. And then we went our separate ways. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting because there, there's also this kind of like, not just identification of suspicious behavior, but there's a, they put a reason to it very quickly. That makes sense. It does. And I'm sure it's part of the job, but it also lends to that, you know, making quick decisions can be um, sometimes really um, the outcomes we can't always anticipate. And so uh, there's a lot of really tricky, tough decisions being made. And just walking us through that one scenario was, I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, okay, what happened? Who was it? Was he right? <laughs> what was he doing? Was he kidnapping somebody? Oh, he was an elderly man who was lost or didn't have his life on. Okay. Um, but it's also interesting because as you're telling that story, I'm thinking how hard it must be to take some of these subjective things that we are coming in with our own biases and our own lenses, as you mentioned. And then how do we get any observer agreement, right? I mean, ultimately, we we often don't have the luxury of that in these sort of situations, right? If there's more than one police officer in the car, you could have those kinds of conversations or if you're able to speak to dispatch. But, yeah, oftentimes it seems like it's those um, those kinds of decisions. So really interesting to hear what was suspicious to you was not necessarily viewed as suspicious and then vice versa with the police officer. Right. Um, I'm glad that you brought up kind of that bias component of it. And that's one of the things that we're trying to really teach and, and send home is that we all enter every situation with our own lens. And that lens is filled with our own biases. Uh, and some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are justified, some of them are not. Uh, and and how do we kind of become more aware of that? And then is there a way to look more objectively of, okay, lights weren't on, I flashed, lights still didn't come on, I turned around, uh, they were in the turn lane, they decided to go straight, turned through the light, I turned my lights on, they swerved and pulled over. And that's all you have, right? As opposed to writing this other narrative of, you know, here's this guy who's been drinking and he's going to, he was thinking about trying to get away and running from me or, you know, all of those types of things, right? It, it, and so I think what, what one of the things we're trying to do is call attention to the bias, but also call attention to those narratives that we start writing uh, without truly taking a step back and saying, well, what's objective right now? What do I know? What do I think? And what do I not know? Uh, and how do we put those things together so that uh, me as a police officer can respond more objectively and maybe hopefully less escalated uh, to different situations? I mean, I think about some of the teachers and special educators and colleagues I've worked with over the years, and it's astounding the level of neutrality they can maintain in pretty high arousal situations. Um, right? Yeah, it's like, wow. I'm like, I can't, wow, look at you. You got that. You ignore that. You stay calm. And it's not always that we're not full of adrenaline or things aren't occurring, but it is sort of that what we can try to do, right, is to control that part of the environment and uh, try to get somebody maybe to imitate that model if possible, right? If I stay calm, maybe right. you can be calm or, or things like that as well. I really appreciate the time that you spent 
speaking with me and for the listeners today of the podcast. I wanted to ask um, a few more questions just about research. How are you documenting this? Are you doing it in a way that others can access it, or is that something we can look forward to in the future? Yeah, so we uh, have a, kind of uh, an exploratory review of research concept paper that will hopefully be coming out very soon. Uh, we have submitted it and uh, are waiting on the final approval of acceptance for it. Uh, additionally, um, as I mentioned, we've been taking kind of some baseline data, so it's it's preliminary. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're learning is that data uh, – uh, you think you're going to do an excellent job of capturing everything you need to know, and then you get into the situation, and you're like, there are all these other variables, and how do we capture them? Uh, and, and that's just the joy of doing research in the natural environment. Uh, but we will be, we did the baseline with the ride-alongs. We're going to do ride-alongs again after a few courses have been taught, and then at the end as well. Uh, so that um, those those data and that research will be published uh, as well. Um, anybody that's interested can always just contact me. And I mean, clearly, I get excited about talking about things like this. Uh, we're also doing some like pre-post assessments for every training. Uh, it's a it's a little more it's competency based, but it's also a little subjective in that you know they're they're going to tell us if they thought it was beneficial or if they could apply it to their job or things like that, just to get some feedback on their perception of the training and, and what they're learning as well. Um, and then hopefully we're diving into some body cam stuff where we'll get some uh, really good data and uh, hopefully train the command staff, which are the patrolling officer supervisors, uh, to use positive reinforcement and feedback um, by catching their officers doing good things. And, and hopefully we'll get some really excellent data uh, on how that could possibly change kind of interactions and relationships with those in the community. That's a lot of potential for positive impact. And I like this. I wrote down what you said. You said that's the joy of research in the natural environment. I was yeah. chuckling to myself. I'm like, oh, it's a joy. <laughs> I like that. That's a really great reframing, Dr. Carson. Wonderful. It's a, it's a joy because there's a new problem to solve. <laughs> well, and that's exciting to problem solvers, professional problem solvers. So, of course. Right. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for joining today, for answering these questions. Um, I'll definitely get your contact information to share with listeners who have, I'm sure, follow-up questions, ideas, or want to join you in uh, some of those passion projects. We'll make sure that, that we do that. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or any shout outs or anything you'd like to share before we end today? Um, I will uh, just give a shout out to my team at Behavior Leader. Uh, there are, we're, we're a small but quickly growing team, uh, but my three core people are Julius Phillips, who is the diversity um, coordinator at St. Anne Police Department. Um, I, I guess I'd also give a thanks to the chief, Chief Jimenez, at St. Anne um, for letting us kind of come in and, and do everything that we want to do with his team. Um, and then my, my, my uh, other colleague, Paul Peoples, and my right-hand man, Mason Washington, they are very unique in that they are also firefighters. Um, and so they kind of broke us into the fire industry, uh, but Mason is, he, he 
constantly says he's not a behavior analyst, but he talks about like reinforcement and evoking behavior and behavior momentum and matching law now. So uh, he might not be certified, but he's definitely a behavior analyst. And, uh, you know, I, would, I wouldn't be able to do any of this without them. <laughs> definitely a behavior analyst at heart. And I think that my final point where you had said maybe it's some subjective measures like getting feedback from the police officers on the training, it's mm -hmm. a validity measure, right? And it really speaks to that article, uh, helping behavior analysis find its heart and making sure that people know that that's a big part of what drives us. Well, again, Absolutely. thank you for joining me and for sharing this information. I'll, I think I'm going to update my website as well to add some of the, the things that you've mentioned. If there's any resources that you can share, I'll reach out to you and see if we can snag that. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about this topic or about applied behavior analysis, head on over to www.behaviorbabe.com.